Welcome to the Olive Tree Podcast channel. Whether you're listening from our beloved Durban, South Africa, or from further away, we trust that you would feel welcome and included in what God is doing in our community, and that you feel inspired by today's message. So we're going to get straight into this message, and Paul is going to address the craziness of our time. He's not messing around, he's just getting stuck in, so watch this. Yeah, that's quite, a, that's quite a setup. So where we are going right now is a liberal arts college in Ohio. Like I'm going to take you by the hand through quite an incredible exchange of emails, really rock star stuff. Okay? So the context is uh, at this liberal arts college that it's Latino Culture Week. Uh, and so there are all sorts of events celebrating the Latino culture. Uh, and one of the evenings of the week in question, um, there's a talk being given for anyone, even if they're not Latino, to understand the Latino history and culture and heritage better. It just so happens that it falls on the same night as the intramural soccer tournament that, that goes on. So a white male soccer player, who I think is maybe the admin for his little team within the school, sends an email. Uh, and have a listen to, to the email. He goes, and he's sending it, by the way, to a Latino girl lady in his team to, to find out the following. Hey, that talk looks pretty great but on the off chance you aren't going or would rather play uh, football instead, the club team wants to go. Okay. What followed was pretty incredible. So the Latino re female receiver of this email um, took offense, took deep offense at this email. And what she did was she simultaneously replied to the guy who'd sent the email, as well as posting her objections on a platform where you get to out people for what they call microaggression, uh, and included her email response to him as well on this public forum. So here's what she posted on the public forum. Um, she says, okay, number one, thanks for thinking this talk is pretty great. I appreciate your white male validation. I see that it isn't interesting enough for you to actually take your ass to the talk. Number two, who said it was okay for you to say football, not just because this is a, uh, in front of me and not in front of you. He spelled football F-U-T-B-O-L. Uh, which is a sort of Latino way of saying football. Normally, Americans, uh, in their great wisdom, call the most popular sport on earth soccer, even though none of us do. So, so he's used a deliberately Latino term. So she says, well, who said it was okay for you to say football? It's Latino Heritage Month. month. You're telling people not to come to the talk, uh, you know, and go and play the game instead. But you want to use our language? Trick no. White students appropriating the Spanish language, dropping it in when convenient? Never okay. Keep my heritage language out of your mouth. If I'm not allowed to speak it, if my dad's not allowed to speak it, then bleep, you definitely are not supposed to be speaking it, especially in this context. She then, um, if that wasn't enough, posted her uh, reply, her email reply to him. She, she says to him, you're not Latino, call it soccer. You don't play football. Football is played with uh, Latino people who know how to engage in community soccer. As someone who grew up on the cancha, which is the soccer field, I know where playing football is, and the way you take up space, steal the ball, and don't pass is far from how my culture plays ball. I feel like amening. I know some people who are like that. Um, I'm not playing intramural once again this semester because you and your cis dude non-passing the ball, stealing Spanish mocking white cohort have ruined it. I don't care if this email is over the top or mean, so complain to whatever white friends you want about it. You're never going to know what it's like to not be able to play your own heritage sport comfortably because of your gender, race, and ethnicity. Cool. Okay. So that's what's gone down. The the white dudes, so now some sociologists get interested and start studying what happens, because you can imagine how much fun the comment section became as a result of this. Really enough to make you 
wish corona was more deadly and that our species is just the worst thing that ever happened to this planet. So, um, this is what the, the, the original emailer does in his reply. He apologizes for the offense. He says it wasn't his intention. Then he goes on to explain how his father was a poor Costa Rican, Costa Rican immigrant. They grew up poor. Uh, he was informally adopted by a Latino family with whom he's still very close and considers many of those guys his brothers and sisters. Uh, he feels reduced to a stereotype and takes offense at the way she's put words in his mouth. Uh, and then he says some other thoughtful things about his struggle to live a moral life despite his white privilege. She then replies publicly online, because obviously that's what you should do. Uh, and, and sadly, she doesn't hear what he's saying um, in what it seems, or the, the content of what he's saying. She goes, no, you don't get to tokenize the fact that you know some Latino people to hide your racism. You know, this is like saying, you know, some of my best friends are gingers or whatever. It's like you don't get to say that and then assume that takes your behavior away. Um, and it just escalates more and more depressingly from there. How does that story make you feel? It's not made up, by the way. This genuinely happened at a varsity in Ohio. You can go and read about it. I know for some, that makes you feel angry. To hear that conversation actually causes some kind of knee-jerk emotional response inside you where this sort of outrage culture, this victim culture, this over-political correctness actually makes you feel like a victim. Conservative folks listening to this lot must just, I think, sometimes react going, well, I don't know how I'm ever supposed to be free to say anything. You might be on the other end of the spectrum going, well, you're a white male, and you're making the white male in this story sound quite good. I promise I'm just quoting what was in the article. Um, but why have you gone and cherry-picked the worst example of this to not try and bash a whole way of dealing with important issues? Um, you're trying to sideline us by using the worst possible example. If you break a few eggs, it's still worth it for the omelet of better equality. Others of you might just be confused by this whole thing and think, well, I actually don't know how to even start to engage. It seems like there's wrong on both sides. What's to be done? Because... What I think 2020 showed us is that that kind of thing, that basket case that is America, has been exported. That all around the world, 2020 particularly exaggerated the fact that we are all kind of on edge. That it seems incredibly easy to take offense. That it seems incredibly difficult to hear one another. That it seems incredibly dangerous to disagree that we're left somewhat paralyzed, and that all you actually end up being able to do is grab hold of the few people you're fairly confident think the same as you, and just create a little echo chamber where you sort of hang out safely. And the world is full of us's and them's. That becomes a difficult way to live. And as I say, 2020 showed us, and if 2021 follows it, that our increasing isolation, the fact that social media is so much more of how we play out our lives, makes this kind of stuff more likely that it's so much harder to have those genuine, slightly safer, slightly less intense conversations than we used to have. Now, before we try and think about what a solution to this way of relating to one another might be, if you think it's a problem, let's first just get clear on what's actually going on here. There's been some amazing sociological research, which I'm just going to simplify into a Neymar example, right? He's a football player, seeing as we're talking about football. But what the sociologists will tell you is that in the old days, there were there have been different ways of us dealing with personal offense or injury. So once upon a time, it was what you would call an honor culture. The honor culture is where any hurt or injury that I sustain, any insult, whatever, anything that makes me look bad, I need to respond fast, immediately, with my own power and strength. No questions asked, no negotiation entered into. That for me to preserve my own honor, I have to immediately destroy the thing that's challenging my honor. 
Now, that's obviously quite expensive because forever you're having to go out into the street and, you know, back to back face each other and shoot one another if they've, you know, duel. And I mean, like, it's just inefficient. So culture, it sort of, I'm told, moved from that honor-power dynamic to what's called the dignity culture. Here you have to preserve your dignity. This is a Sting song, The Englishman in New York, who, you know, will never run, only walk. And, and the idea here is that to preserve your dignity and, if possible, the dignity of the person who's hurt you, you should, if at all possible, tolerate. If you can't tolerate, then you need to deal with it privately behind the scenes. You're supposed to try and minimize how bad your injury was. Um, in the same way as the first, you know, the honor thing, you have to make, make sure you look strong and don't show any weakness or don't show that it hurt. Even more so in the second. Uh, You've got to just elegantly slide through life and deal with things in a way that allows you to come out with your dignity and, if possible, the other person's dignity intact. So the Neymar example that I promised you. Here's how I think this looks. You're walking down some steps, you slip at the bottom and fall. In the honor culture, the thing to do, if everyone's sort of starting to snigger and think you've just made a fool of yourself, is to grab the janitor who just washed the step and left it slippery, haul him to the top of the stairs and throw him down them and let everyone laugh at him, right? I am stronger and you change the conversation from your weakness to your strength. In the dignity culture, you walk down the steps. If you get it right, actually, you just glide straight over the slippery step and don't even slip. If you do slip and you immediately look up going, flip, I wonder if anyone noticed me, and you're feeling embarrassed, then what you're supposed to do is shake it off, not act like it hurt. When the janitor comes up to you to say, flip, I'm so sorry, you pat him on the shoulder and you say, no, there, there's no, anyone can make a mistake. And you walk off with your dignity intact. And what you've done is you've taken a moment of potential loss, for you, and you've come out the bigger person. Now, we're in a different culture right now, aren't we? We're in a, in a victim-centered culture. So what you do is if you slip at the bottom of the stairs and fall, you take a cue from everyone's famous footballer, and you roll around on the floor screaming, holding your ankle even though you hit your head, or vice versa. And when the janitor comes towards you to say, Flip, I'm so sorry, you recoil when he touches you, and you accuse him of sexual assault. And the point is, you make the biggest noise you can to get as many people as possible to feel sorry for you, because now the weaker you are, the more of a victim you are, the more offended you are, the stronger you are. We've turned sympathy into an arms race, essentially. And so you tell me that you have a reason I should feel sorry for you, I don't dare let you get any more of the sympathy than I can afford, because sympathy is a finite resource, and it's incredibly powerful if I can get it. So I go, you think you've got it bad. What about me? You know, my father was a poor Costa Rican Im immigrant. The genuine Spaniard might listen to that email thread and go, who are either of you to claim my language? You're both flipping American. We're Spanish, and it's our language in the first place. Then someone else is to say to the Spaniard, you think you've got it bad? You colonized my country, and so it goes. Everyone rolling around, screaming on the floor, asking the ref to help them. And the idea, again, is that if I can, if I can polarize enough, if I can say you're with me or against me, if I can then attach the injury I suffered to something about me, remember in the, in the previous versions of this, you wanted to pre preserve your, your strength and your dignity somehow. So you would say, yeah, a bad thing happened to me, but it's got nothing to do with me. It's just a bad thing. It doesn't define me. I'm bigger than that. Now you have to say, no, a bad thing happened to me, and it's because of how small I am. That's why it happened to me. And it's because of this and this and this issue that's true of me. And what you're doing is you're trying to get everyone who has those same variables true of them to have to take your side. Essentially what we do is we say, I am now allowed, because of what a victim I am, I'm now allowed to give license to all the selfishness that's actually going on inside all human beings. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying, the only way for you to show love towards me 
is for you to agree wholeheartedly and shout my case just as loud. If you question it, if you go, yeah, but what about a bit of perspective? If you say, well, I'm not so sure, maybe there are two sides to the story, then because my injury is connected to who I am, if you doubt it or if you downplay it or if you want to question it, the only explanation for your disagreeing with me is that you hate me. It's a virtue if we indulge the victim. It's a hate crime if we question the victim. Now, I don't want to say this is all wrong. There's clearly evil in the world. There's clearly injustice. There are victims in the world. Something needs to be done. It needs to be called out. But you can just imagine, if we were to use this tactic in, say, a marriage, how much chaos we'd cause. Believe me, if every time a husband and wife heard one another, the other went, okay, well, this is to do with something about me and something clearly evil about you, and I am immediately going to Facebook to screen grab and post and get as many people on my side as possible. And any conversation that you want to have with me, clearly you're on his, on his side and clearly you're, it's a hate crime. Like, you might win that argument, you would lose that relationship. And friends, we're seeing that in the world, aren't we? that as much as we get hooked by each individual example of one of these because they connect to something that's genuinely wrong or some genuine injustice, or it connects to something that's true about me, and I've actually, now that I think about it, also experienced some pain in that area, and so, yeah, well, something should be said about this. Every time we give in to that, we're saying that self-pity, self-interested thing inside us can be glorified, can be magnified. And trust is lost. Relationship is lost. The opportunity to disagree and discuss disappears. Democracy gets undermined, essentially. Society is at great risk if we're going to treat one another this way. Now, you may or may not believe the claims of Christ. Uh, you may or may not have a huge amount of faith in the Bible. But I think that if we're looking down the barrel of a victim culture and we're thinking that's bad news for society, I think we've got a solution in Scripture. I think we've got an amazing opportunity to find a different way to do it. So even if, as I say, you're not sure about this stuff, just with an open mind, come with me to the second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 6. The Apostle Paul's talking to a bad church. These guys are full of rubbish, and they have been slandering him. What's actually been going on, I mean, the second letter to the Corinthians is amazing because it's incredibly personal. Paul spends most of the time fighting for his relationship with these guys and defending his ministry and defending himself against false accusations. You didn't charge us, but I bet you stole from us behind the scenes. You don't actually speak that impressively. These other apostles who come in here speak much more impressively than you, Paul. They've got letters of recommendation. Where are your letters of recommendation and your qualifications? They keep saying all this stuff to undermine Paul's ministry. And the problem with that is not just Paul's relation, reputation. The problem with that is that they're undermining all the stuff Paul taught them, which is getting them into deeper and deeper trouble and it's robbing the life of God out of that church. So Paul's concerned, I suspect not so much for his own reputation, but to save it for the sake of getting them back onto right teaching. So that's what's going on. He's been taking stick from these guys. And in chapter 6, um, he starts saying to them, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. I'll read it from here. It's easier for me than I'll get confused if I read there. Um, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So just pause. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's a risk that you could take the grace of God for granted. In fact, you, there's a risk that the grace of God might be extended to you in vain. You could waste it. And he then goes on to say it's possible that in, if I was to get things wrong, I could put an obstacle in the way of your freedom, an obstacle in the way of my ministry. So I'm going to show you that I have deliberately taken that obstacle away to make sure that you're not going to waste the grace of God. How has he done that? 
How is he commending his ministry? How is he removing obstacles? How is he ensuring that they receive the grace of God not in vain? Well, by great endurance and afflictions and hardships and calamities. And he goes on for the rest of, the, of verse 4 and 5 to talk about the, the tough things that have come at him, but the godly ways he's endeavored to respond to them. Picking it up in verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Now, listen to this with what we know now about victim culture. We are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown, and yet we're well known. As dying, but behold, we live. As punished, and yet we're not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. So in return, I speak to you as children, Widen your hearts also. You are restricted. There is an obstacle. The grace of God, the flow of it, is being constricted somehow. Have you ever experienced asthma? I sometimes get it, like an allergic thing, where it's like the air is just not, it's there and you're getting some, but it's this panicking feeling of I'm not getting enough. Paul's saying there's, you've got spiritual asthma. Something is restricting the flow of grace into your life. And it wasn't us because, and then he describes the way he's lived. Just listen to this. He says, poor yet making many rich. Think about how different that is from victim culture. It's the opposite. In victim culture, if I'm poor, I make you pay. I don't make you rich. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. If I'm sorrowful, if you're treating me like I like I'm, have a right to feel sorry for myself, then I'm claiming it in victim culture. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Like, no, no, sorry for myself and always recruiting is the victim culture response, right? I want you to feel sorry for me as well. Slandered and treated as an imposter, and yet he opens his heart wide to them, to people who should know better, and invites them into this spacious place. You know, Eugene Peterson in the message version of that final verse 11 um, says it like this. He says, dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. You know, when we look at the world right now, we're going, you're being small. (laughs) But the truth is, don't worry so much about society. Look at yourself. Because I may be too old-fashioned to admit it by posting online when I think I've been wronged and I feel like a victim and I want to have the right to be selfish, but in my heart of hearts, I love the excuse to be selfish. In my heart of hearts, I take it really personally when I'm a victim and I do like to attach that to my identity. When someone slights you at work, when someone cuts you off in traffic, when someone makes a decision that impacts on your ability to earn, when you're the victim of systemic prejudice or whatever's happened to you, it's tempting to make that the, the core of who you are and to go, I'm wronged. I have a right to be selfish. I am entitled. And entitlement, as I say, in any relationship, if you allow that in, it breaks that relationship. And yet we're allowing it in society because we think it's fair. So if we're going to fix it, if we want to remove the obstacle, remove the spiritual asthma, live like Paul lived, well, how do we do that? What's Paul's plan to to change the motivations of these hopeless Corinthians? Because Paul is basically saying, I'm a victim many times over. But, and this is amazing about Paul, he's saying, you can make me a victim for a moment, and I'll call you out on it. 
So he does call them out on the ways that they've mistreated him and sinned. This isn't some like stiff upper lip British uh, dignity culture who just tolerates everything and then actually, you know, writes that person off for the rest of life. We don't need that. We don't need you to just tolerate and pretend nothing went wrong. Paul says, no, you can make me a victim for a moment and I'll call you out on it. But if I let that become a part of who I am, if I let that impact on my freedom in God and my ministry, then I'm no longer a victim. I'm a volunteer. I'm choosing to let that happen. And you know what? I'm not going to. I'm going to live the way I intended to live anyway. So now Paul wants to call them into that. He wants to remove the spiritual asthma that they'd be experiencing by calling them to live that way. Now, how's he going to do that? What's Paul's next move? What's Paul going to say to the Corinthians? More importantly, what's Paul going to say to you and me and Durban? How do we get out of this entitlement way of thinking? Now, as I said, this whole letter is Paul being very personal and defending his ministry, but he takes a break for two chapters in the center of 2 Corinthians to talk about something theological, something totally different. What's it going to be? You know, maybe Paul's going to take a moment to prove that Jesus is actually a bigger victim. No, that's not what he does. Now, you might think that's what you're supposed to do. Superman these days, you know, the movie, it starts with this um, bulletproof muscular genius having to position himself as a as an orphan and a minority, lost and afraid in the universe. Like, I can't even let him be a superhero until I believe that he actually has a victim story. No, that's not what happens to Jesus. Jesus isn't claiming to be a bigger victim than you. And Paul doesn't go there. Paul does something fascinating. Paul takes a break from dealing with their entitlement to do the thing that actually comes totally naturally to God and so unnaturally to us. The thing that is the antidote to an entitlement heart. He starts talking about generosity. Interesting. Paul's been doing some famine relief fundraising. And a few years before, he'd spoken to this church about raising money because Corinth was a wealthy trading town for other areas of the, of the church and the, and the world where there was great lack and great poverty. And they'd committed to, they'd pledged to help. And now Paul says, okay, look, let's just go back to, by the way, you still owe some money towards this famine relief project. And he takes two chapters to do this incredible bit of theology on how Giving should happen. See, I don't think Paul's just remembered a little bit of admin that he had to deal with in the middle of his letter. I suspect he knows that if you can get people thinking about generosity, you can get them out of entitlement. Because what generosity does, I think this is amazing, is it gets you to stop thinking about your own lack and genuinely value and dignify someone else to pay attention to their lack for a little while. But then it also causes you to value yourself because if you're going to be generous in any way, if you're going to help in any way, you have to admit you've got something to give. You can't continue to consider yourself a victim while at the same time realizing there is some resource in your life that could bless someone else. And so it takes your attention off yourself for a moment, and then it puts your attention back onto yourself and onto your strength, onto the resource you have, onto the blessing you have. It's the ultimate checkmate to entitlement. So here's how he motivates them, because this all makes sense. Okay, cool, it'll solve my selfishness and my entitlement. Okay, cool, Paul, and you've also said if I can live like you, anti-victim culture, then I remove spiritual asthma in my life and I'm going to allow the grace of God to flow and I'll live bigger. Okay, cool, I get that. But if I'm feeling a little unspiritual and a little selfish, I don't know if that's maybe enough of a motivator. I I might need more. I mean, some of you, I'm sure most of you find generosity easier than me. But I look at some people who are being generous and I'm like, I'm sure it's just because they have rescuer complexes and bad boundaries. You know, like, maybe that's true for some. But it's like, okay, generosity's hard. So, Paul, have you got anything else for me? Have you got any other motivation to help me get over myself and into this generous spirit, this new way of 
living. So let's just jump a few chapters ahead to where Paul's summing up his argument for being generous in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's Paul doing? Well, I think he's quoting a proverb. I think he's saying, look, there are all these spiritual reasons, there's all these societal reasons, there's all these reasons that are good for your heart, but if that's not enough, it's also just gonna be better for you. Like, you're gonna get something in return, which is how it's possible that you could be a cheerful giver. Even you, stingy Paul, even you, you know, victim mindset, Neymar, I'm sorry, I mean, I'm sure he's a wonderful guy. I'm not really sure, but let's assume he is. Um, No, no, even you who are self-interested, If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. Your self-interest should motivate you to generosity. Should we go to that proverb that that Paul's quoting? So it's from Proverbs 11. And if I can find it quickly. And um, here's what it says from verse 24. As I say, I think Paul's quoting this proverb when he makes that point to the Corinthians. He says, one gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Okay, well, like we're, we're deep into the upside down now, aren't we? What? I give away more and I'll have more? I hold back and store up and hoard and I'll have less? Yep, that's what Paul is saying. More importantly, that's what the God who set the rules for this universe is saying. He's saying that's actually how it works. No, 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 wait, hold the phone, what? Yeah, and while you're at it, if you want to save your life, lose it. And by the way, love your enemies. And by the way, if you really want to be strong, be weak. And by the way, if you want to be the best leader, serve everyone. God's going like, you've got some bad information about how the world works. You know, I think about it like this. What if we are orphans born into some kind of life of labor, you know, like a concentration camp of some sort, and the guards can't quite be trusted, and so there's a bit of random treatment. If that was our state, then we would probably look to fairness as the ultimate hope. If someone could just run this place fairly, if we could just get what we deserve, that would make everything so much better. See, that is why I'm so sympathetic to the victim culture. Because going, well, it's unfair. That dignity stuff didn't work if you were at the bottom of the food chain. That honor stuff didn't work if you weren't as strong or as rich as so-and-so. So if we could just climb the ladder you know, either make friends with the gods and we get to have more power than the rest, or, I mean, I suppose that was the honor culture, or actually, no, if we could just make it fair, if we could just mean that you get what you deserve, if we could make this performance orientated, that would make everything better. So when God goes, no, it's, it's not a work camp. It's not even a fair workplace. This world's a family. I'm your dad. This, this world doesn't work on the system of performance. It works on the system of the providential goodness of a father who's longing for you to trust him and obey him. I can see how if you're coming from that orphan work party mentality, that just sounds like more unfairness. I can understand how the fair system might seem like a preferable one to the, there's a father who just wants to lavishly, ridiculously bless those who trust him. I can see why Jesus so often recognized as kids who can get this. Kids get this because they instinctively recognize that the world should feel like a family. The rest of us are too grown up and we struggle to trust that this is how it's supposed to work. But that's exactly what God is saying. He's saying this system doesn't work on that like work structure idea that you think it should. 
that if you're prepared to respond to my heart and allow your heart to become a generous one, you will throw off the spiritual asthma that has been strangling you. You will remove the obstacles that have stopped you enjoying and taking full advantage of the grace of God in your life. You will be able to live like Paul and enjoy it so much more than those who are trying to stingily hold on to their entitlement. It's better for you. God's appealing to your self-interest, saying, get out of the work camp, come into the family, see that that's how the system works. It's so other, it's so different from what you've been taught to expect and put your hope in. But it is so... You know, Paul says you're restricted in your affections. It's like actually ham them up. Explode your affections, the things you really long for, the things you really want. Allow that to turn you into someone godly as opposed to trying to be all rational and think about who's right, who's wrong, who deserves this. Let's just keep it fair. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched and the one who waters himself will be watered. It's like when Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than receive. He actually meant it. What have you got to give? Right now. You know, if you're going to dignify yourself for a moment and say, well, I've actually got some riches to give. And if you're going to dignify the people in your life for a moment and actually think, well, where's their lack? And not immediately go, well, but I've got worse off than them or what about so-and-so? Like just... Just allow what actually comes most naturally to God and what actually comes most naturally to your godly heart to just take over for a second. What have you got? What resources of your life could you share with others and allow it to bless them? And clearly, obviously, all this conversation has been about money, but if we were to stop there, I think we would miss so much more of what actually is being called of us here. I think your time and attention, your showing up in someone's life is one of the you know, what's more scarce right now than time? Which means what's more valuable right now than your time? You've got that. And you can be generous with it or you can be stingy with it. And you can allow yourself to live in a spacious place or allow yourself to end up in a toxic, entitled place. Your words are so powerful and we are so stingy with them. We wait till someone's dead or someone's leaving the organization before we start telling them how we really feel about them. How about your victimhood? That supposedly is the most valuable thing on earth right now. The most powerful statement in the world is to say you're offended. So what about the ways that you are a victim? What about the things that have happened to you? How might you use that to bless others? You know what we call that when you take your victimhood to bless others? We call that forgiveness. I have been wronged, and so I'm going to go to my oppressor. Jesus says, when your oppressor forces you to walk one mile with them, often to walk further. When someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. What he's saying is, you can actually take back some control. You can value yourself enough to say, you know, even in the places I've been hurt, I can extend some love and grace and forgiveness, and I can ennoble, I can humanize, I can, I can bless the person who, through ignorance or evil, hurt me. What about your touch? You know, we're so separate from one another now. I get it. But you have an opportunity to, whether actually physically or just letting your heart connect with someone else's heart, expose yourself to someone else. Allow them access. Give them the chance to hurt you. Because if you're not going to do that, you have no chance of blessing them if you're keeping such distance. And the sociologists tell us this victim culture rises when we're separate from one another. And now we're more separate than ever. And all these protocols give us an excuse to be closed off and selfish like we kind of maybe always wanted to be. 
And so don't allow health protocols to turn your heart into something isolated. You still get to touch one another. You still get to use the gifts you have in the church. You know, just 1 Corinthians 14 says, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you, each of you, has a hymn or word of instruction or revelation, a tongue, an interpretation, something to give, and all must be given so the church can be built up. Stop holding it back. You have glory inside you. Just showing up might be one of the most generous things you can do. You have your peace and your hope. You have your assets and your cash flow. You have your network. You can do better than that. You can think of all the things you've got, the glory that's inside you. As we close, and as I'm trying to challenge myself to be more generous with this stuff, Nats Nordea has amazing children, um, and I'm supposed to say my children are the best on earth. I love them the most on earth. I think hers might be a bit more impressive, though. Um, and, and she's got a story about one of them uh, that I think brings this whole thing to life in the way that God would feel about it as you start to take up the dare to be more generous. Have a watch with me before we close. A few years ago, my dad was coming to the end of his battle with cancer and staying in our home, and it was a terribly difficult time as a family. Um, in terms of how I was coping on the mom front, it wasn't great. I was doing all I could to manage the situation, but one day in particular it was bad. I had not gotten into the grocery store, and we woke up late for school, and to my absolute horror, realized that there was not enough to make up lunch boxes to send three kids off to school and for them all to have breakfast. So doing the best that we could, we gave two of the children breakfast and I told my daughter that we would give her money to grab a toasted sami at the tuck shop since they had one at school. And she seemed quite happy with this arrangement. But still, um, as a mom, and particularly because I'd been a teacher, I felt awful sending my child off to school without um, breakfast in her tummy, just knowing that that's, you just don't do that to your children. Anyhow, off she went, and um, about an hour after I got home, I got a message from a mom at the school who said she had been so deeply moved to see my little girl sneaking out of the school gate to give a toasted sandwich to a lady who was selling goods um, outside the school. And yeah, it was such a proud moment, you know, just to think of this little girl of mine who was herself going through a tough thing and I knew would be hungry, but just had responded in this incredibly generous way um, to somebody else's moment of need, really. And um, I was, yeah, just immensely proud that she had this kind of ability to, to pour out in, in that way. And it reminded me of something that a dear friend shared with me recently, um, which I found fascinating and such an incredible invitation um, by God. And it's that the Hebraic root word of, of um, the word righteous is tzedak. I'm probably not saying it correctly, but anyway. And then the, the Hebraic root word of the word generosity is tzedakah. And what this actually means is that the the expression of righteousness is actually generosity. And so when you think of generosity, you think of somebody who just goes over and above to be kind and who does things that are beyond what's expected in a situation. And when you think of righteous, you think of right standing. And when it's biblical righteousness, it's the sense that somebody is just tucked into God and tucked into Jesus and that everything that they need is inside of Him. And when God looks at us, He just sees absolute rightness because of Jesus. And so, when you understand this and that this righteousness doesn't mean then that you have to be generous. Rather, it's 
an expression. Uh, generosity is an expression of what righteousness is. And that you can so completely trust your Father to have given you absolutely everything that that will be expressed as in an outflowing of, of just giving where there is need. And so this moment with Rachel was just so touching to me because even though we were having possibly some of our worst parenting moments not winning on the parent front, she still trusted that tucked into us and our family, she would not be without, that there would be enough. And it's just such a picture of us that when we're tucked into Jesus and seen as right before God because of what he's done, it's just that sense that absolutely everything that we need is there, it's provided for. We can trust that our Father will give us everything that we need and therefore that our expression of that can be radical and beautiful and wonderful generosity. I think it's amazing that Nats draws the connection between her daughter's confidence in her parents and her daughter's ability to be generous, even out of lack. You see, all this generosity, if it's to be sustainable, if it's to be genuine, it's got to start in a certainty that God himself is incredibly generous. If you're not sure about that, then you'll never pull off this other stuff. Even if Paul says it's going to make a more spacious place for you, even if Paul says it's going to allow you to you know, improve life, even if you know, the sociologists tell us, well, we need this because the victim culture thing is looking scary, for all those other reasons, it's not going to last unless we are deeply, firmly, immovably confident that God himself is generous, is loving, that he allows his love to express itself in ways that cost him. And you see, while we're on the topic of parents, that's exactly what God has proved. He has given his child in order to get you home. And if I'm not convinced of the radical, ridiculous generosity of God towards me, it's going to be very hard for me to, to live this out in my life. You may have seen the trailer for the new HBO series on the life of Tiger Woods. And there's this incredible archival footage which... Um, for very good copyright reasons, we're not allowed to show you, but I'll just quote it to you and I'll try to, no, I'm not even going to vaguely try to sound like Earl Woods, Tiger Woods' dad. But there's this incredibly touching moment from quite a long time before Tiger Woods has won all his majors and so on, where this dad gets up and starts talking about his son. And if you've not seen it, he says, please forgive me. This is Earl, this is Tiger Woods' dad. Sometimes I get very emotional when I talk about my son. But this is my treasure. Please accept it and use it wisely. And the truth is, we didn't and Tiger didn't really use himself wisely. And there's this great tragedy and, and pain and waste that I think we feel for in that story and that relationship. So when the father, the father, looks at you and says, here's my treasure, here's my son, please accept him and use him wisely. Let's not make the same mistake. Let's accept the radical generosity of God which can then overflow into incredible generosity to ourselves and others. And as we do that, as we allow the love of God to cause us to refocus on the resources of our lives and to work out He can be trusted, therefore I can be free with this stuff. I can sow it generously. Then I can take advantage of the promise of Proverbs 11, 
which in spite of the laws of supply and demand, in spite of the laws of recessions, in spite of whatever other laws you think, trump those laws and say, he who gives generously, he who sows radically, he who shares what he's got, he who gets more. And the one who withholds has less. Father, I want to not waste your son in my life. It's very easy for me to look at others, to look at society, and to think about how much better I'm doing than them. But there are parts of my life where I'm stingy and afraid. There are parts of my life where I see myself as a victim and I'm selfish about it, whether I speak it out or not. There are people in this world who I think owe me and I refuse to be generous to. And all of the stuff that's lurking in my heart, I can see it's bad for me. And when I extrapolate it out, I can see that as all of us are doing this, it's bad for all of us. So Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you invade those corners of all of our hearts right now? And not with right thinking or with big arguments or with a big stick, but with the way you love to do it, with your incredible, generous, vulnerable, costly love. Would you just silence my complaints and silence the ways I think I'm owed and silence the areas that I think I need to save up and look out for number one? Would you just heal those parts of my life and expose those parts of my life to the incredible oxygen of your generosity towards me so that all of us could lead ourselves and our culture into that spacious place. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you're wanting some practical ways to do this, We Are Durban's just turned 10, and I think there's going to be a generous, wonderful, servant-hearted thing you can do every month of this year. Why not have a look at that if you can't think of anything else? Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I appreciate so much your time and your attention uh, every Sunday morning. It's, it's amazing that you are with us on this journey. So as we head out into this week, may you be blessed. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like to find out more information about Olive Tree Church, please visit our website at otc.org.za or email info at otc.org.za. We hope you have an amazing week.